It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? What we've really solved is human language. That's huge. For yeah. 50 years or 60 years of computer science, we couldn't even get close. And now we can make things that are actually fluent in human language. It's amazing. And so what we can do with that is all kinds of new business cases where we can make things more efficient. We can, we can do more with fewer people with less resource. And I think that's why the economics start to matter. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. This week, you're in for a treat. On the program, we have Naveen Rao. He's a serial entrepreneur who started working on AI way before it was cool. And you may have heard of him recently because in June, he sold his two-year-old startup, Mosaic ML to Databricks for $1.3 billion, that is with a B, which is not bad going. Mosaic, which was developing low-cost ways to build and train AI models, only had 55 employees, so quite the result. In any event, I wanted to have Naveen on because one of the really interesting aspects of the market right now is that just how much it costs to train these AI models. It means that in most cases, only the very biggest or very best funded companies can build these really big, super capable models. And this, of course, is a big obstacle for smaller developers and kind of the, the development of AI more broadly. But what Mosaic showed is that you don't need tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. That you can really build powerful AIs for just a few hundred thousand this is obviously a huge deal with very big implications for early movers like OpenAI who have spent billions developing their tools and are now trying to push through regulations to make it harder for others to compete and build rival products. Uh, anyhow, it's just a fascinating case study in how quickly technology, you know, that feels so new can, how quickly it can then evolve and turn what was yesterday seem nearly impossible or extremely expensive into something that tomorrow could be trivial and cheap. 
So Naveen is also super interesting just because he took a pretty circuitous route to starting Mosaic, um, having jumped into the first dot-com boom, then going back to university to get a PhD in neuroscience, which uh, has informed how he has approached building these systems in the AI world. So anyhow, tons of fascinating stuff here, and it also provides real insight into why there is such excitement about AI, because it is only going to get cheaper, faster, and better. And after this conversation, you'll have a better sense of just how quickly that's all going to happen. In fact, Databricks just published its view of how this will all evolve into a world where, you know, for a long time it was software that was eating the world, and now we're entering this new phase where AI is going to eat software, and it's all just going to get very interesting very quickly. So without further ado, here is Naveen Rao, founder of Mosaic ML and now of Databricks. Enjoy. This is going to sound a little weird and stalkery, but I've been watching Mosaic from afar for a long time, <laughs> <laughs> at least since the last like 18 months, because I was like, as I was trying to make sense of this moment in AI, Mosaic's name came up a lot because especially around this idea of how we're training these models and how quickly that was changing and what that looked like. So I don't know if if we could basically start with Mosaic and kind of how and why you started it and kind of what the big idea uh, was there, and then we can kind of go in lots of different directions. Yeah, uh, I can tell you about the early days, which wasn't that long ago. Uh, we started the company in January of 2021, and uh, and really we were focused on accessibility of these methods of you know essentially large models large language models. That was a word we use in the industry. No one else really knew what that meant. Certainly not generative AI. That was a new, a new term <laughs> that probably started what mid 22 or something like that. Really, there were two major blockers to accessibility. One was expense, just, you know, how expensive it really is and how expensive it's perceived to be uh, to train large models. And then the difficulty of doing so. And the difficulty is largely driven by systems issues. You have thousands of computing elements, GPUs, and you have to make all of them work together and do that reliably. Uh, GPUs fail, lots of stuff happens, and you have to manage all of this. And this was not actually easy even for the large labs. I mean, they had to build tooling around it. And my background and a lot of my team's background is very much in the system side of things, like making these systems work well, work efficiently. Cost was actually an interesting problem because yes, you can apply standard software efficiency, and that's something we do all the time. It's like the standard hygiene. But the other part of it that's very interesting is compute efficiency. How can I make a computing flop learn from data more efficiently? And actually, this is something that goes into my background as a neuroscientist. Um, I actually think efficiency is part of the conditions that are required to create intelligence. So if you really want to look at this in a big, you know, zoom out 50,000 feet kind of thing, human intelligence couldn't have happened until the basic underpinnings of learning, the brain, computation were kind of evolved to a point where they're actually very, very efficient. Our brains run on 20 watts of energy and they, they encompass everything we are. Every amount of yeah. compute processing we do is in 20 watts. That's very, very far away from That's where we crazy. are That's crazy, yeah. I've had on this podcast previously neuroscientists from UC Berkeley and the lady's name escapes me now. But she was looking at the development of babies' brains as how it can or cannot relate to how we develop AI. 
And one of the things that stuck with me from that conversation was just how efficient our brains are at learning relative to like, you know, just the unfathomable amounts of data that is required to make, quote unquote, an AI that's in any way useful. The human brain just takes in so much less and does so much more with it that I just, it's an interesting kind of paradox or paradigm as you, as we think about, you know, this idea of neural networks, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, if we look at these large scale neural networks, I mean, they're, they're trained on say 10 or 20 trillion tokens. So if you were to read war and peace every week for 30 years and listen to eight hours of human speech every day for 30 years, you'd be exposed to about 1 billion with a B tokens. Wow. So that's, 10,000 human lifetimes of data. And it even gets better because if you think an infant, an infant can talk pretty much complete sentences by three years old. They probably only heard maybe, I don't know, a couple of million words. That's it. It's very, very efficient. I mean, obviously there's evolution has created these structures in our brain that kind of learn how to uptake that sort of information. But there's a lot more going on here than a large language model. That's fascinating. So you started Mosaic two and a half years ago. And what was the idea when you're thinking about those issues that you just raised? Like, how did you solve them? Well, yeah. Okay. So let's, let's get into that a little bit. First, we had to characterize them. We published a blog in 2022. It's, uh, it was just over a year ago now. Uh, it seems like a lifetime ago, but uh, we were the first ones to truly publish and characterize the costs of training GPT-3. And we applied all of the efficiency methods, which I'll get to in a second, to that. And we showed that you could train it on, at that point, uh, extant hardware like NVIDIA A100s for about $450,000. This blew people's minds because they're like, oh, this is clearly a $10 million plus kind of a thing. It's like, no, 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 guys, it's $450,000. And so, you know, we just, we just started putting a number on it and we, were, we can back that number up with real data. We did the same thing with, with diffusion models. So we, we have our own diffusion model, which was uh, you know, kind of similar to stable diffusion or mid-journey or any of these. You know, it was $600,000 to train. Now we can do it in less than $50,000. And just, just to stop you there, like when you're thinking about, I mean, we just had all the big tech earnings and the cloud businesses are just like raking in tens of billions. And this is all about doing this work of training these models and running these models, but you're saying that they can be like for a tiny, 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 tiny fraction. What's the difference there? How does that even work? Well, there's there's two ways to look at it. You can say, well, I can throw more money at it and make more GPUs. The reality is, and I'm happy to talk through this, but we can't make that many more GPUs. I mean, in the world today, we don't have enough equipment. We have to build all that up. That takes years. So uh, we actually have a fundamental limit on how many flops we can build per year. Flops for the folks at home? Ah, sorry. Uh, floating point operations. <laughs> I say these things after a while and they become just part no, of your vocabulary. I get it. I get it. <laughs> so floating point operations. So we can only deliver so many floating point operations per year, like total on the planet. And that's basically chip capacity, effectively. Chip capacity, it's packaging capacity. You know, basically taking each of those chips, packaging it together with memory, putting it on a board, putting it into a system, and then deploying it. So uh, if we don't use those flops more effectively, we have a barrier to what we can do every year. So using those flops more effectively actually is an unlock for a lot of research and a lot of new capabilities. And so I actually think it's a it's a very important thing to be able to do well. And, you know, if we do things cheaper, easier, that just up levels what everyone can do and we keep moving the ball forward. And so this is an essential part of it. 
And so uh, how do we how do we make things more efficient? We actually have been very open. We publish a lot of this stuff. We showed even with uh, the old ResNet 50 type stuff, we actually won the ML Perf benchmark, which is typically reserved for hardware players. We are not building hardware. We just did it all in software with algorithms. We beat all the hardware vendors on their own hardware because of our you know, efficient algorithms. Some of it comes down to things like throwing away data points that don't matter. In the real world, we learned some representation. Many of those, many of the data points that come in after that are, are confirmatory. You don't, you're not really learning anything. Don't go through the learning process. Toss those away. You save a bunch of compute. Focus on the things that are actually more important. That was, that was some of the stuff that we did. Being able to use lower precision math where it matters and making it work stably, that's actually quite important. So instead of using 32 bits or 16 bits, maybe we're using 8 bits. 8-bit multipliers are a quarter of the size and a quarter of the power of a 16-bit multiplier. So these are the kinds of things that actually start to save energy and save computing flops and save silicon area. So is there an analogy here? And this, you can tell me whether this is completely clumsy and not uh, doesn't work. But is it kind of like, you know, if we're looking at these large language models and the way they're being developed, it's kind of like the invention of the internal combustion engine a century ago? compared to what we have now, which are like many times more efficient. They're kind of so finely tuned that they're just almost like a different machine than what we were looking at a century ago when it was like three miles a gallon and belching out exhaust. That's exactly right. I mean, you have to learn how the system works and you have to learn how to make it efficient. And when you do that, you enable scale. And uh, I believe economics are always a fundamental part of technology. If you don't get the economics right, you cannot scale. Like, this idea that we're just going to build this giant supercomputer, we're going to create AGI and it's going to be done. It's just not, not true. You have to make it cheap. You have to make it accessible. And that's what we focused on very early on at Mosaic. And those investments we made, like engineering investments we made, actually paid off quite well in terms of building efficient models, building a stack around that and delivering those efficiencies to our, to our customers. And what was the model then? Was it was it you you were licensing these models that for others to build upon, or you know how were you as a business? What was the business? I mean, the, the business is actually similar to what we're doing inside Databricks as well. So um, it evolved to this, but uh, it's a managed service for training, customizing models, and then serving those models. And uh, what a managed service means is that you don't have to deal with all the complexities of cloud software, GPUs, failures, all of that. We've abstracted it away. And we basically said, okay, you want to take a model, you want to train it on your data, you want to customize it with your data, and then you want to serve it, and you want to do all of that securely. We just make that very easy. And the way we, we evolved to this was we saw that there are a lot of ML ops tools out there that were like trying to make something, some kind of a workflow easier or something like that. That's part of the problem. It's not the full problem. The full problem was like, I need to be able to train this model to do something. So we actually looked at it more holistically and said, yeah, yes, you need those ops tools, but you also need the science on how to make that model train effectively. Making a large language model train stably and repeatably is actually not simple. Because there's so many computing elements, all kinds of weird things happen. And you, know, you get things called like loss spikes where it just goes off the rails and you got to restart it. We had to actually understand what's going on there. And now we just have this thing, it's essentially push button. You say, import your data hit go, it starts training. Uh, but it took us a long time to, to get to that point. But that is actually the artifact that has value, is the trained model, not the tools themselves necessarily to get there. So you started Mosaic 
two and a half years ago, and then three months ago, you you agreed to sell to Databricks. Uh, it's almost exactly four months now. Four yeah, months. Can you talk about that deal and how and why that came together? It was actually a very natural fit. Um, to be completely honest, we had multiple folks coming and talking to us about acquisition, and you know, I've I've done this before. Um, I didn't want to work for some big company. <laughs> so to me, it was a very clear no. Um, there was almost no price. that <laughs> I wouldn't say no price, but like almost no price that would make it work. I met Ali Godzi at uh, Cerebral Valley Conference in April, I think. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, we hit it off. I think they actually saw our team and saw what we were doing and were keeping tabs on us. And, uh, you know, I was just in touch with them. We talk about different stuff, CEO to CEO. And, uh, yeah, at the beginning of May... It was interesting because he pinged me on a weekend. He was like, hey, can we talk? And I was like, all right, I think I know what's going on here now. <laughs> <laughs> and so then, uh, you know, we, we talked on that Monday morning and he said, yeah, well, what about joining forces? And I, I basically said, look, I actually think it makes a lot of sense because what we had to do as a company, as Mosaic, is we had to build a giant sales, sales force. We had to gain trust of the enterprise. These are hard things to do. And actually, no yeah. amount of money accelerates it. You just got to do it. And it takes years. Databricks had done that already. You know, they had a large sales team, thousands of people. They have established a trusted relationship as a partner for the Fortune 1000. And literally, it's the same buyers. I think this is actually very crucial is that Databricks sells to the same people that we're trying to sell to. We were, right. we were talking to Databricks earlier, actually, to try to get a partnership in place to tap that go-to-market channel. So in my mind, I said, well, if I go at it alone, I have the risk of not establishing that trust. Or I can de-risk the situation and join forces here. And really, that's why it became natural. And I told him at the very beginning, I was like, all of it makes sense. You just got to see if the economics work. Right. <laughs> right. And how many people were you when you sold? 55. 55. And you sold for, is it 1.6 billion? 1.3. 1.3 billion. Yeah. So not bad in, for not two bad. and a half yeah. years of work. I mean, I know it was like, uh, you know, there's 20 years leading up to that, but... Um, quite a result. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I, I didn't mentally think about it as an acquisition. I see it as just stick accelerants. We're right. strapped on, strap onto this big rocket and yeah. go faster, you know? <laughs> well, so just stepping back, I met Ali at a, a dinner in San Francisco a couple months ago, and I was talking to him about this open versus closed debate, which I've talked a lot about on this podcast before. And I'd love to get your sense because I think it's what's really it's really interesting what's happening right now because we just had the OpenAI Developer Day and they've, they've effectively launched their app store so people can, you know, they want to become the Apple of the kind of AI app economy. What is your view of how this is going to develop, especially when we're talking about this open versus closed approach? All right, there's a few, few things to disambiguate first. Um, regulation, let's table that for a moment. We'll yeah. come back to it. So open versus closed as far as market and, and all of that goes. I think I fully support open AI to be as closed as they want to be. They're a company, they build IP and they want to sell it. I have no problem with that whatsoever. I, I think they're doing fantastic work and uh, they're trying to figure out ways to monetize it, just like all of us are. So great. They should do that. So I, I actually don't subscribe to the view that, oh my God, they should be forced to open their stuff. Absolutely not. What that creates is that now we have this place where people are hoovering up data from various sources. And, you know, we're, we're all in this frenzy trying to build stuff. And is that data really 
okay to build off of from a permission standpoint? Is it good data? They're trying to determine some of this on their own, but I have a feeling that not all the producers of that data would be okay with it being built into a model for profit. I think openness actually allows companies to, to introspect. So we've been very open because we're selling to enterprises. We're not actually going yeah. after consumer. Consumer probably doesn't care. They're like, oh, this thing is cool. I can use it for something fun. Enterprises care very much about risk. And they want to look at like, okay, what data went into this? What are the potential behaviors of this model? You know, how can I mitigate anything bad happening? All of this. And so I think when you're talking about enterprises, you need to be very open. And we've been very transparent with all the data that's gone into our models. Very likely, there's some data in there that's probably not properly permissioned because there's a trillion data points. Yeah. So we're saying here it all is. Here's an S3 bucket. You can go look at it yourself. We tried, we did our best, but you know, we might've missed something. So if you want to go look at it, please go do so. I think OpenAI has, is struggling a little bit with this and um, that's their own making and they can choose to go, over, go after consumer, fine. So I think openness is great for the community. There's a lot of people in the research world screaming that, oh my God, this is going to slow down innovation. I actually disagree with this. I disagree with it because we saw the same thing happen in micro architecture of CPUs. Everybody talked about things openly. They, they published papers on it. And then when the market became big and it became like, okay, now I can sell CPUs. And I can make a bunch of money off of it. Of course, it's natural. People are going to close out, close it off. And it doesn't mean it slows down from the standpoint of new innovations. Those innovations are now behind closed doors. You have people who learn those things in school and then come and learn the trade secrets within the company. And it's just a natural evolution of the industry. So I see this as natural. I think there's an absolute place for openness. And where things benefit us as a company or OpenAI, they do open it, right? It's like, right. we don't know how to solve this problem here. Let's put it out there. This is what we did. Uh, we published a paper or a blog and other people come in with new solutions. So I think, I actually think the system is working just fine, uh, to be completely honest with you. There's a little bit of a civil war element in tech at the moment around this open versus close where, you know, people are, the open AI argument, which I've never fully bought is like, Guys, this is so dangerous. This is basically like the the A bomb. Yeah, but trust us, we've got it. You know, but don't let anybody else do this. Because okay, so let's let's talk about this one now, right? <laughs> the danger and the regulation yes. side of things. And that's where I think it's kind of silly. I agree with you. It is. It seems totally ridiculous. It's like okay, well, this is a doomsday machine. We're gonna build it, right? And nobody else, no one can respect it, and it's safer that way, right? So if you want to talk about societal risk and that kind of thing, I think openness is important. I think open yeah. software is actually how you make something less risky because everyone can go bang on it. They can go find the holes and then we can patch it and we can talk about what those solutions are. The same thing happened in cryptography. Uh, same thing happened with Linux. There's so many examples of this. And I, I actually think this argument that closed models are, are, are safer is just self-serving from some of these companies. I agree. I actually find it not so great, yeah. <laughs> the kind of rhetoric I'm hearing these days. Yeah. Can we go back to, you know, your education and then, because uh, I want to bring it back to kind of this moment we are in AI, because I think you have a unique perspective. So well, let's go all the way back. Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Well, I was born in the UK. Um, oh, and then, well, yeah. you said you mentioned hoovering up data, which is <laughs> British. Because I lived in the UK yeah, for I lived in the UK for many years, and I was like Hoovering. Hmm, that's not something most Americans would say. It's actually kind of funny. I didn't even notice that. I, I have these weird <laughs> things. Like my my parents lived in England for like eight years, and so it's weird terms I say. But 
I left when I was very young. My brother is like, you know, six and a half years older than me. He grew up there. So right. I still use S's many times instead of Z's. It's just uh, yes, a weird yes. thing. Yeah. So I was born in the UK, but then came to the US when I was, you know, an infant and then um, grew up primarily in Eastern Kentucky of all places. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. How did you go from the UK to Eastern Kentucky? Uh, so my parents are Indian and, you know, they immigrated to the UK when the whole Commonwealth rule was there. And um, my parents came to the US. My dad's a physician. Did his U.S. residency in Massachusetts, so we were there for three years, and then I don't know. He got a job in Eastern Kentucky. <laughs> right. I, I don't know what else to say. To be honest, <laughs> I, I've asked this question and never gotten a satisfactory answer. So. Right. 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 And how was it growing up in Eastern Kentucky? Interesting. I I grew up in a town called Whitesburg. I'm not making this up. That feels made up. I know it's not, but it feels zip like code it. is four one eight five eight. You can type it in Google. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, it was very rural as, you know, Indian immigrant kid and, you know, just pretty different kind of cultural values. But yeah, I have, uh, you know, just a kinship for that place because I grew up there. But, you know, obviously education was always very important to my family and just intellectual curiosity. So we did a lot of stuff. My brother was into computer stuff a lot. My dad was always a big tinkerer, even though he's a physician, he always liked technology. So I think just that exposure, like I started programming when I was probably about four five um, what wow yeah because we had a uh we had a texas instruments 99 4a you're old enough to remember these things i am Uh, and i learned logo logo was like a a fun language you could like type in turn right and it'll you know the turtle turns right yeah so for little kids it was actually really good and i know we have like code.org and all these these neat tools now but really it comes down to making something physical work and being able to see the results and kids get interested so you went you grew up there, and then you went to college. Was it at Brown? Uh, I went to Duke undergrad. Duke undergrad. Where'd you study? Computer science, electrical engineering. Okay. So you went there, and then I saw you were at a bunch of tech companies, Intel, Qualcomm, et cetera. And one of the things that I was looking at on your LinkedIn that piqued my curiosity, uh, for a year and a half, you were in the neuromorphic machines program 
at Qualcomm. What is that? Well, okay. So I actually had a bit of a circuitous route. I, yeah. I did undergrad, came to the Valley, was in, in the Valley for 10 years in a bunch of startups, designed a bunch of chips, a bunch of software stacks, then quit my job, went back and got a PhD at Brown. So I was at Stanford for a little while and I dropped out. Right. So hold on. In that 10 years, you're doing all these startups. Did you have any, were there any like, oh my God, we've done it. These, this is the, the startup glory story or was it more kind of the opposite or a little bit of everything? Uh, a little bit of everything. I mean, we had, I, you know, I, I entered that, uh, the Valley in 1997, which was just before oh, the dot-com wow. boom yes, in bus. Yes, yes, yes. I got to live through all that, <laughs> uh, which was fun. I mean, uh, I actually, uh, during that time, I worked for a company that Andy Bechtelsheim started. So I worked with Andy quite a lot. And, you know, that was right around the time he wrote the check to Google. They seem like right. ancient history now, but it's, uh, I was there. I was in the middle of it all. <laughs> wow. That's when Andy went back to Sun Microsystems, acquiring our company. So yeah, that was all kind of very interesting times. So you saw the explode, the, the big run up and then the complete collapse. And you were in the middle of all of that. That's right. And what was interesting is that um, 2021 had 1999 vibes all day. I, yeah. I was just like, this is all going to blow up. I felt this before. <laughs> you know, I've seen it all happen. It was very similar in a lot of ways. I think there's some big differences, of course, too, but crypto and, and all of that stuff just kind of getting pumped, pumped, pumped. Crypto felt the most just bubbly and nonsensical to me. It did. But I mean, look look at the dot-com bubble. Yes, there were a lot of stupid things that happened. Yeah. A lot of stupid things that got funded. There are also a lot of amazing things that happened. Google, Amazon, eBay, like all the, there's, yeah, all the handful of giants basically started then. They're the ones that survived. They did. So Google, Facebook, all of these guys started at that time. And I think we're, we're seeing that similar kind of thing happen now. There's a lot of stuff happening in AI that probably won't go anywhere, but there's a lot of really meaningful things. And so that's why I, that's why I keep doing what I do. I love it. And I love seeing that technology transition happen. Fortunately, I've gotten to see two or three in my lifetime. You know? Right. So you, you studied, you came out here, you saw the boom and the bust. Why did you go back to do a PhD 10 years into your career in neuroscience. Yeah. <laughs> That's a funny thing you asked that question because my whole family thought I was a nut. They were just like, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> you have this great career. <laughs> and I had one and a half kids too, you know? Oh yeah. That's very brave. My goodness. Well, I think if you look at entrepreneurs, many times they're a little bit nuts and you know, I yes. probably, I probably fit that mold uh, <laughs> quite a lot, quite well. I really was fascinated by bio-inspired computing. Just innately, just because you were yeah, I mean, even in undergrad. So um, I did research on neuromorphic computing. What that is, is back then it was actually Car some of Carver Mead's work. Uh, Carver Mead was a professor at uh, Caltech, very well-known guy. He actually did this thing, which was, I thought, just magical. He took transistors, which we kind of knew how, how they worked. We understood them. And he actually was able to model biological systems like neurons at the biophysical level using the transistor. And there's actually a lot of analogs, a lot of parallels between you know, ion flows and, and the way those are gated right. by molecules and the way transistors work. And I just found this fascinating. The first thing I learned was that your, your retina, the way it's structured, does what's called a Laplacian transform on okay. the information that comes in before it sends to your brain. And I was like, this is so cool. How the hell did, did nature discover this yeah. thing that works so well, right? And so from then I started going down the rabbit hole and this is all as an undergrad. And I actually did a, a research project on this stuff and actually built like neuromorphic systems that could recapitulate the behavior of neuronal systems using transistors. And I could do all this in like 
physics simulations. So basically remaking natural biological systems in electronic form effectively. In essence, yeah. Still a research uh, thing. And that's what neuromorphic systems are. And, uh, you know, I graduated, came to the Valley, was in the whole thing, the washing machine that is the Valley (laughs) for a little while. (laughs) And, you know, you move away from that thing. But after several years, I was like, you know, I really care about this. And I was like, it's now or never. If I don't do it now, I will never do this. Especially if you're having kids and yeah, it's a whole thing. You kind of, there's certain times in life where you're like, I'm either going to do something now or it's not going to happen. Exactly. And I saw that happening and I was just like, this is the thing I'm really passionate about. And, you know, I was a kid who grew up reading Robert Heinlein and Arthur C. Clarke and all this stuff. And it, I was just fascinated with this idea of an intelligent machine. And I was like, there's, we got to crack this. Like we got to get within 20 Watts. We got to make efficient learning a, a thing. And this was a while ago, like no one was thinking about it. And so I wanted to go learn what we knew about brains. And so I was like, what better way to do that than get a PhD in it and train animals and learn how to do neurosurgery and all the stuff <laughs> that goes along with it, you know? So you did learn how to do neurosurgery on animals or actually you didn't become a neurosurgeon? No, no, no. Being a neurosurgeon is a total, that's another yeah, path. Yeah. But uh, yeah. we would implant uh, these chronic electrodes into the brains of monkeys and actually teach them behaviors and monitor the information content of the neurons. And that same technique was used in humans. So we invented the technique in my lab at Brown and uh, the first, what we call intraparenchymal implant, meaning inside the brain, was done in a human in in our lab. I've had BlackRock Neurotech on the pod. I don't know if you know them. Yeah, that that was my advisor started that. Right, with the, the Utah array and like the 100 pins into the brain. And this is a whole other topic, but I did a whole big magazine piece and i interviewed three guys who have these implants today who are all quadriplegic and so hearing them describe how you know how this thing works and one of the guys had the pedestal on his head for seven years or eight years now he's like the record holder but just yeah how that how you know converting thought into action which is just like such a mind-blowing thing but oh that's interesting connection anyway sorry that's what I did. Um, I, I worked in that lab. Thought and action wow. was our lab motto. <laughs> That's John Donahue. Uh, he, he was my yeah. advisor. Yeah. So that was, uh, that was a lot of fun. I did the kind of basic science side in the monkeys to understand information content and actually computation. So we could manipulate information, like visual information. We could also like ascertain motor output and we could actually yeah. say what, what kind of computations are occurring. And so watching these systems work in the real world... Mm kind of got some ideas about what we can do better in computers. And that's when I went to Qualcomm, brought it all the way back to neuromorphic computing again. Right. <laughs> and then actually saw that deep learning was was really starting to work. And that's when I started Nirvana. And what happened with Nirvana? So we were around, again, about two and a half years, we were acquired by Intel, a bit over 400 million. Uh, that became the seed of Intel AI. So I started and ran a new division of Intel, grew to a huge group, they're still shipping stuff today, all the stuff on CPUs, software, uh, accelerators, all, a lot of that came from from that time. And um, yeah, it was an interesting experience. I mean, it's uh, doing something within a very large company like Intel is hard. Yeah. And, you know, I left in 2020. I don't know if you read this piece uh, some six or nine months ago. It was around the time that not long after OpenAI put out ChatGPT and there was a 
a former Googler who sold his company to Google. And then he wrote this piece on Medium about his frustration about how nothing gets done at a big company. And I think he called it the mouse is the maze or something like that. I think he was the Waze founder, right? Yes, I think you're right. I think you're right. It was interesting to hear like him explain why you know you get into this big company and you have these vested interests and you have a business model you have to serve yada 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 but that you get into these big cash machines and it's really hard to kind of make things move it is i mean i think incentives are definitely different i mean i think i think if it's the same article um that i'm thinking of he talks about the fact that the incentive mostly internally in big companies is about getting promoted yeah and so you do things to get promoted. You get you you work on visible projects, whatever you need to do. Whereas a lot of startup people, including you know the, the the teams of them, not just the founders, they're they're very passionate about the thing they're building. I actually didn't, I couldn't care less what my title was. Uh, yeah, didn't really care that much about comp. I, I didn't optimize for any of this stuff. I don't think I asked for a raise once when I was there. Uh, I I just cared about getting my product done. And I think. That mentality is so different. It's like an alien life right. form has landed you know, right. inside these companies. They're like, wait, you don't care about this? Like, no, I just want to ship this product. <laughs> what yeah. can I do to get that done? And so they're not thinking that way. And I think um, then there's that and the vested interest of keeping the existing machine going. And if something is potentially going to disrupt that machine. They actually don't like it. And I think that was what I dealt a lot with. It's like AI actually hurts the CPU unless the CPU adapts. And uh, this created a tension inside the company. And maybe some of that tension is healthy, but uh, it, it makes it very hard to get things to move in a direction, new direction. And kind of going back to, so you left there in 2020 and started Mosaic. How do you feel about like where we are and where we can potentially go, given especially your interest in like kind of getting to that 20 watt super efficient learning machine and making it available to as many people as possible. You know, we're getting near the end of 2023. We're kind of in this AI boom. Where do you think we're going? How fast and how quickly do you think we're going there? Well, I, I think the the large model, large language model, or whatever you want to call it, is a new piece of technology. Yeah. And it does something very interesting. I, I actually don't believe it's full-on intelligence. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't think it does as much reasoning as people get it, give it credit for. I think it's very good at pulling information flexibly using human language. What we've really solved is human language. So that's huge. For yeah. 50 years or 60 years of computer science, we couldn't even get close. And now we can make things that are actually fluent in human language. It's amazing. And so what we can do with that is all kinds of new business cases where we can make things more efficient. We can, we can do more with fewer people with less resource. And I think that's why the economics start to matter. So I think the next few years are going to be about taking this technology, kind of like you talked about tuning the engine. Yeah. We're going to make it faster, cheaper, more accessible, um, lower power. And we're going to start finding all these new use cases in different verticals. And so that's it's, it's like the dot-com bubble where if you look at 1999, yeah, the internet existed, but like you saw social media come in like 2002, yeah. 2003, 2004. These kind of applications are going to start happening over the next five, six years. I think safety and all of that has been a big topic all of a sudden because people have basically said, oh, it's intelligence to solve. I don't agree that intelligence to solve. Once intelligence is solved, we absolutely do need to think about you know, how we don't destroy the world. Well, when you say intelligence is solved, how do you define that? 
I define it as I can completely remove a human and allow this machine to do it on its own. Right now, we're building tools that augment humans. Yep. And we're going to continue to do that. And they're very good at that. But the human still needs to be there. We need, we need the human judgment. We need the error checking. It's the kind of the co-pilot model. It's totally the co-pilot model. And it's incredibly powerful. But it's not something I can just turn it loose and say, yeah. go solve this problem. Or go make novel discoveries. It's not yeah. quite there yet. But you think we will get to that solving intelligence, i.e. the machine that can be like, you know, help me go solve climate change and just let it go off and do its thing. And it's kind of, or whatever, not, that's obviously a big example, but more mundane kind of white collar work. It can just be done at some point. Yeah. And I don't think that point is, it's not right, right now. It's still a little ways off. It's 10 years off. Maybe it's less than 30 years off, you know, it's right. within, within our lifetimes. Do you think we need to like make some fundamental discoveries to get there? Or is it a question of just, as you say, tuning the engine and kind of just continuing to progress along this trajectory on which we've started? I think tuning the engine is an important part of it and it will unlock the next part of it. I don't think it's right. just that. We have to do more fundamental stuff. I mean, what it comes down to in the end is that um, large language models, they, they observe a bunch of data. And they, they kind of pick up these correlations, spurious or not, from that data. What an animal does is actually quite different. It experiences data. It forms some, some sort of hypothesis or model, takes action upon the world, then feels a consequence from that action. That consequence then, you know, either reinforces or refutes some kind of hypothesis. And so uh, this kind of action loop consequence thing isn't really happening yet. It will. And once it happens, we're going to find that the systems are super unstable and they don't work and they don't learn and blah, blah, blah. And we're going to figure it out. And then we're going to start to build things that actually can start to build real world representations from right. their experience. And are you of the view that pairing that with choose your robot form factor, the bipedal robot, for example, that that will be like a society altering thing? It will be. And robots can be defined much more broadly, right? I think an autonomous car is a robot. I mean, a washing machine is a robot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, your phone is a robot. Yeah. Um, potentially, it can take actions in the world, right? We don't allow uh, an LLM to do that yet because there's no feedback loop back. There's no consequence. Like, it can, do, it can spew something that's completely false and make up false citations, and there's really no consequence. At some point, there will be, and we'll start to figure out how to train that and make it improve itself over time. But yeah, I, I, there are lots of things that are robots and they're going to start becoming more autonomous over time. And we do need to prepare for what that future looks like. How old are your kids? Well, I have a 17 and a 16 year old and then a, a nine month old or 10 month old. <laughs> you entrepreneurs really are crazy. You were free. <laughs> you were, you were, you were almost at the, like the promised land and you're starting all over again. It's absolutely true. And uh, yeah, and <laughs> that's a whole other topic of discussion. But I'm sure. I'm sure. You know, I, I always like to kind of ask this question for the folks who are kind of building this future. Like, what do you tell your kids? How do you think about preparing them for this? Because as you said, it's maybe 10 years away, but it's not 30 years away. The world's going to look, it sounds like, if we're on this trajectory and it continues, the world's going to be a pretty different place in a lot of fundamental ways. How do you, what do you tell your kids? How do you prepare them for this new world? I mean, really, it comes down to uh, really basic stuff. I mean, I, I know people get wrapped around the axle about what should I study and this and yeah. that. I actually think that's less important than intellectual curiosity. 
really understanding a problem deeply. What I find that's interesting is like, I don't think I'm that smart. I think I'm just tenacious. I'll go after a problem and I'll be like, all right, I really want to get to this crux of understanding where I'm satisfied. And I'm like, I just need to like dive in deeper and deeper and then be like, okay, cool. I, I Now I understand this thing. Turns out when you do that, you know more than 99.9% of the population because most people don't do that. Yeah. So um, it's it's just being tenacious and really understanding the problem at a, at a deep level where it matters. And I think, you know, there's a gut feeling of what's important and what's not prioritization. We only have, we only have so much time on the planet. Uh, yeah. We got to prioritize that time. So these basic concepts, I think, are actually the most important thing. College, grad school, those things really give you a, give you some frameworks to learn how to think, learn how to organize, learn how to communicate. And so those basic skills, I think, are actually the most important. And so I actually don't, I'm not too prescriptive with what my kids have to do, but I do want them to be, whatever they do, be really freaking good at it and put the time in. That makes sense. Uh, before I let you go, just on that, again, this moment where we are in tech and knowing the brain as you do, having studied it, that 20 watt machine versus these, by comparison, incredibly inefficient AIs. How close do you think we get? I mean, is that in it, is that the unlock? Just getting basically reducing that delta between those two, because then basically we're going to have like endless brains just working on stuff in the world. Yeah, it's like uh, brains become software or something, right? Yeah, I still think that, like I said, that's it. We need to build that efficiency. We need to understand how learning works in order to build big, bigger things, and then it starts moving to a different strategy, like. Actually, the same thing happened in biology. If you look at mm. brains of insects and these kinds of things, which is a view into the past in a sense, the, the neurons actually work quite differently. There were some underpinnings that are actually very similar to our brains. Some things are very different. The mammalian brain came about, and it's actually, it, it was the, one of the first flexible input-output mapping machines. Kind of came out of the reptilian brains, like this outgrowth. Actually, at the beginning, my thesis was all about this. I found it f- quite fascinating, like how this evolved. And it started becoming this thing where, okay, a rat brain and our brains, the under underlying circuitry is very similar. It's almost identical. Yeah. So the mammalian brain solved that basic efficiency problem. But then there's something else that happened, something about learning, something about biases and structure of the brain that made humans amazing. It's not just scale. Elephants, dolphins, whales, they all have bigger brains than we do. And they're all mammals. But our brains and our motor output with being able to talk and communicate, do something quite a bit different than they did. What is that? I don't know. I think we're going to start, we're going to start rediscovering all this stuff in synthetic systems, (laughs) which I think is actually kind of cool. That's kind of fascinating because it's like, yeah, you know, like if the whatever blue whale brain is like, you know, a data center the size of a um, city block, why does that work as well as ours, which are comparatively a lot smaller and a lot more efficient? Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, how do, how do we use our neurons to guide strategies for next level thinking? Why did we even do next level right. thinking? I, I think that's still an open question. I mean, there's a lot of hypotheses out there, but I think actually going through this synthetic intelligence thing will actually tell us a little bit more about ourselves. As an academic, I think that's, that's fascinating. And research really comes down to some kind of self-motivation. Like, why do we do yeah. research? Well, I think a lot of it is we want to understand ourselves. (laughs) Totally. And that was the first part of my conversation with Naveen from Mosaic, now of Databricks. I want to thank Naveen for taking the time. I want to thank you all 
for listening, for the ratings, for the reviews, for telling your friends and neighbors, all of the usual stuff. And if you haven't done a review, do one now. Please, do it for me. I'd appreciate it. I will be writing about AI, of course, this weekend in the paper and a few other bits and pieces. So do check out the paper. Pick up a copy of the Sunday Times or online at thetimes.co.uk. And if you want to get in touch, you can find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson or email me danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. That is it for me this week, and we'll talk to you very soon. Bye-bye.